Welcome to the Fierce Focus Show. Hi everybody, this is Ryan Ross. Welcome to another episode of the Fierce Focus Show where I interview success-primed people to understand how they focus to create progress in their lives. Amber Ahmad is the founder and head chef at Mazadar Bakery, which is the first brand under the Calicchio Discovery platform. Amber grew up being fascinated by how things worked. This led her to study genetics at MIT, get her master's in international health policy at the University of Michigan, and get an MBA in business and finance at Wharton. She's worked at Goldman Sachs and at Morgan Stanley. She's worked in the restructuring of hospitals and health systems in the US and Canada. And she's helped brands expand their footprint throughout the world. Now this has given her quite the toolbox of skills. And all the while, cooking has been a constant joy in her life. It wasn't until she received a query that made her do a double take that she decided to jump fully into baking. In this episode, we talk about how she filled up her toolbox that prepared her to start Mazadar, how studying genetics contributed to creating a bakery, how Mazadar's best experienced the concept of mise en place in helping a chef focus, and how the trees in a snowy Michigan winter are similar to being an entrepreneur. Ladies and gentlemen, Amber Ahmad. Umber Ahmad, welcome to the Fierce Focus Show. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to hear about all the things you're creating right now. So my first question for you is, you grew up in Pakistan, and then you moved to Michigan. And I'm wondering, why Michigan? So I actually was born in Michigan. Oh, you were born in Michigan? My family is from Pakistan, and my father was a professor of uh, medicine at Harvard Medical School. And uh, he decided to go into private practice. And uh, he and some of uh, his colleagues had really thought about the market in terms of what I I call the very modern day market study and looking for where the opportunity was in the United States uh, where there was a dearth of ophthalmologists. My father's a corneal surgeon. And uh, there was a northern part of Michigan in which um, there were only one set of ophthalmologists for the entire upper part of that state uh, of which my father became a part. And so it made a lot of um, financial and business sense for us to move up there. It was an interesting time. It was the 70s and 80s, and so I was born um, in uh, Marquette, Michigan, where there were all Swedish, Norwegian, and Finnish people, with the exception of a handful of families. There was one Chinese family, one Indian family, us, and maybe one other uh, like Filipino family, and everybody else was blonde. And so it was an interesting way to grow up feeling like you belonged and knowing that you didn't belong. Um, and so, to my parents' credit, we used to travel a lot as children. Um, every year we'd go to Pakistan for a few months, and then we would spend time in another country. So we would spend time in various countries in Europe and, and have an opportunity to learn about the world and sort of understand that we belonged uh, in that world and not just in one small place in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, so you played violin, you, you played I hockey. I did. You have a pilot's license, I, I hear. I do, yes. And I'm wondering, how did genetics fit into all of this? So uh, I was always interested in why things happened. Um, So I think as a child, a lot of children ask why. Um, And the response to to me by my parents was always like, well, you go figure it out. So understanding the basic fundamentals of how things work uh, became extraordinarily important and interesting to me. So I would take phones apart and radios apart, and I always wanted to know what the inner workings were of um, any one thing that uh, benefited or enhanced our life. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my dad, um, helping him, helping him, holding things, <laughs> band-aids. I don't, I'm sure I thought I was helping uh, when he would see patients and go into the hospital. And there was just something really incredibly soulful and meaningful about helping other people. And that, for me, uh, at a young age, translated directly into medicine because that's what my father did. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I wanted to understand medicine, but I wanted to understand sort of how it worked. I wanted to take the radio apart. I wanted to figure out what was inside. And the best way to do that was to understand genetics. Um, So I went to MIT and I studied genetics and I became hyper aware of how quickly or how slowly the things that we do in our life can impact other people. Um, My father says I'm part of the microwave generation. 
where we want everything to happen with, with great alacrity and, and we're not patient um, on things. And so when I really started to do more genetic research, I really started to understand that what, as important as what I was doing was, I wanted to know that it was going to impact people in my lifetime. And I wanted to know that I would be able to see the fruits of my labor and, and understand that I was benef- helping something or benefiting yeah. something. So I wanted to try to speed that up in a way. Um, and so I ultimately decided not to go into medicine. And instead I went into public health. I went to the University of Michigan. I earned a Master's of Public Health in International Health Policy and Epidemiology. And I really started to understand and attempt to to affect the way in which healthcare and the health of a population results in better socioeconomic status, economic output, um, and the way in which people live their lives. If you're a healthy population and a strong population, you'll have a better economy. It seems very basic. It sounds very obvious, but it's very difficult to achieve. So I started to spend time working on the restructuring of hospitals and health systems in the U.S. and Canada, helping people think about having a finite amount of resources and 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 a certain number of people and how do we get the best possible care to those number of people with that small bucket of money that we have. And the more that I did that, the more I really started to understand it was about the execution of care, but it was about what size that bucket of money was. Mm-hmm. So the more resources you had, the better funded you were, the better capitalized a business is, the more likely it is that you would have the outcome that you desired. And I knew that that was what I needed to start focusing more of my time on. So I went to Wharton mm-hmm. and earned an MBA, a double uh, major in finance and healthcare management. Okay. So that's where the... the uh... The business comes into the toolbox. That's where the business comes into the toolbox, and it gets added to the toolbox. So that's what I love about what you just said is it is a toolbox. It isn't, in fact, every time you make a decision in your life about your career or about your direction or the thing in which you want to, on which you want to focus, uh, you're not abandoning yeah. what happened before. You're adding to it. This is all accretive to the ultimate um, goal and outcome. Yeah, and, uh, and that you use all the tools that you took and you applied them. You, you were Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs. Um, how did that uh, contribute, everything you learned contribute to, um, I, th- I think you started a, a practice where you would uh, bring your expertise to uh, luxury comp- uh, clients in Dubai and, and U.S.? Yes, that's right. Uh, so every piece is built on, on itself. Yeah. So I, I spent time really um, being very, uh, very educated and active in the capital markets world. So understanding debt financing, equity financings. M&A transactions, uh, moved on to Goldman Sachs, where I spent time in private equity, mm-hmm. uh, largely around capital raising and understanding the, uh, the necessary relationship between the capital available and the investments in which that capital would go. And, and spending not as much time trying to convince people to invest in private equity, but spending more time trying to understand that which keeps people up at night. That's my, one of my favorite questions when I meet anybody, especially someone in a senior position in a firm or as a potential client or a potential person with whom we will have some type of business relationship is, uh, what do you worry about huh. and what keeps you up at night? And it's almost never the thing for which you have been brought in to that meeting. Uh, and they pause and they look at you and they start to talk about something else. And that ultimately becomes the way in which you help them. Yeah. But it helps you really understand what their capital needs are, where their true investment purpose should be. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's all about figuring out where their actual pain points are and, exactly. and how you can solve those things. That's and, exactly right. And it's not just, just de- deploying the capital wherever. It's being right. very, very strategic and focusing that capital in a, in a way that goes towards their actual needs. That's exactly right. Okay. Uh, the firm that I uh, co-founded with other partners of mine is called Specialized Capital Management, and we uh, focus on helping companies think about ways in which to expand uh, from a capital standpoint, but mostly also from a geography standpoint. So companies come to us and say, you know, we have X amount of revenue and Y number of stores or, or outlets or locations in the United States, but we know there's a whole big wide world out there, and where should we go, where will we be received, um, and where can we find the right partners? And we have been doing that for a number of years now, helping companies think about the way in which to um, integrate um, themselves into primarily the Middle East and Asia. Mm-hmm. I read with, that you said when you were younger, food has a language of its own, and I'm wondering, how does it communicate? Food does have a language of its own. Uh, as children, we traveled a tremendous amount, and uh, very often, even though between my parents, my sister and I, we think we speak 
eighth, eighth languages. Oh. Um, there were oftentimes a language that we didn't speak. Um, so the communication came through our attempts to understand other people. And my parents had this incredible gift where they would find the local restaurants wherever we would go. A hole in the walls. A hole in the I walls where with, you would, we would look for taxis that were parked outside because the drivers were eating there or it was a local restaurant or it was in a neighborhood and almost never had an, a menu that we could understand. And so through sign language and drawings, we would get the food. And uh, it would be a way in which we would understand the people's intentions. Yeah. Everything we do every day, why we work, what we do, why we toil away, is so that we can provide for ourselves and our families. And so the providing is in the form of food and the intentions in the form of food and the, the histories in the form of food and the hopes and the dreams and everything of a person comes through food. And so it became a language that we learned to speak so we can understand other people. Man, that was very... It, it, I can tell that, that you're deeply ingrained in, in loving food and providing it. Yeah. Uh, you have to love... I think you have to love what you do to be good at it. Um, But I think with food especially, I really believe that um, no matter what you do, your intention gets transferred and given into whatever it is that you're trying to do. So if you're trying to build a house, uh, your intention goes into that house. If you're trying to bake cookies, your intention goes into that cookies. And then the people that then consume what you have or have given them or, or experience what you've created will get that intention. So if you walk in and you're frustrated and you're angry and you're disbelieving, yeah. uh, that translates. Yeah. That really does. Um, so you have to love it. You have to love what you do. Yeah, it's funny. I, I try not to speak too much on these, but I have a great example of this. I, I went to Thailand for my honeymoon and we went we, we took a cooking class. Oh, I Best love that. Best idea ever. I will always take a cooking class in whatever country I, That's I, so I, smart. I go to. So we had some friends over and I'm like, I'm going to cook Pad Thai. Didn't, I, I over-proportioned the noodles with everything else. <laughs> Didn't turn out as well, but they knew that I was like excited to make it for yeah. them, you know? So the, the intention was there. Right. If, if the outcome may have not been there. <laughs> um, there's a word in the Urdu language, which is the language we speak in Pakistan, mm-hmm. and the word is niyat. Yeah. And niyat is, uh, the loose English translation is intention. So I remember when I would try as a child to make things, and they would turn out terribly. They'd cake was offsided or something didn't taste right. I thought it was sugar and instead it was actually salt or whatever it was. And my parents would be so lovely and they would take a bite and I would say, it's terrible. And my mom said, yes, but your niyat was good. But the intention was good. Yeah. So even if the outcome isn't exactly what you'd hope for. So your niyat was good. Thank I'm you. sure the pad thai was probably great. And I'm a personal fan of those noodles, so uh, I would have been happy with uh, extra noodles. It was, it was, it was good. <laughs> the niyat was good. The niyat was good. Uh, so I read that this was the... Well, Actually, I'm, maybe I want to back up on that. Um, you were consulting for restaurateurs mm-hmm. to expand them into yeah. uh, the, Middle guessing, East, Middle mm-hmm. East, um, and and you're baking on the side. I baked as a passion. I baked, baked as a stress reliever. Yeah. I baked as. That's something that I love to do. Um, there's also a tremendous amount of science in baking, yeah. and my coming from a science background, yeah. especially under working with proteins. So every type of flour that you have has a different level of protein. Um, the the process of combining different types of fats and proteins together affects the uh, overall outcome. And so I started to play around with things like that and started to be more excited about things like that. And I just love to bake. Um, I learned how to bake as a child. We had a um, a lady that uh, was like our nanny, but basically became one of our grandmothers uh, who raised, helped raise us when we were children. And she is from Finland, mm-hmm. and she used to bake all the time. And those are some of my fondest memories with her. We call her Graham. And Graham would like wrap me in a blanket, and she would pop me up on the counter in the kitchen, and she would tell me stories and tell me all these great memories that she had or things that she did. And she would sing to me, and she would bake. And I would watch her, and then I'd, when I got old enough, I'd help her. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the history of that just became a love of mine. I never had any intention of it becoming a business. Yeah. Never thought it would be my profession in a million years. Um, but then when you allow yourself to be open to an opportunity yeah. and not so uber-focused on what you think your outcome should be, an opportunity presents itself. What was that opportunity for you? Uh, Tom Colicchio, who is a chef and restaurateur in uh, the United States, he has a handful of restaurants, including Kraft, mm-hmm. uh, Witchcraft Sandwich Shops, Colicchio and Sons, uh, Heritage Steak, and a number of others. He's also the uh, founder and the head judge of Top Chef, which is a cooking competition show on the Bravo channel. Uh, he became a client of ours. 
and we started working with him on the expansion of his brand overseas. And I happened to make a chocolate cake for the friend, a friend of mine's husband who had a birthday. And unbeknownst to me, uh, this friend of mine's husband knew Tom and said to Tom that he had this amazing cake. Uh, and so Tom said, where did the cake come from? And he said, uh, our friend Umber made it. And he thought, well, how many Umbers can there be in the world, right? <laughs> it's like, like a Madonna or an Oprah, whatever. It's like not that many um, with my name. And so a couple of days after that, I went in to see him for a meeting. And I sat down in his office, and Tom looks at me very sternly. And, and Tom can be very intimidating with that sort of yes. that, that deep gaze. And he looks at me, and he goes, I heard you make cake. And I said, uh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and he says, I want to try your cake. And I said, you're out of your mind. Why would I ever cook for you? So for people who don't know who Tom Colicchio is, he's considered one of the most celebrated, venerated chefs in the United States. He's a James Beard Award winner. He's absolutely fantastic. And I likened it to bringing a prayer book to the Pope. No one would ever do that. Um, But then he said to me, he said, you know, no one ever cooks for me. Everybody expects me to cook for them. And I thought about that. I thought, that's reason enough to cook. So I spent the next four days making everything I knew how to make. Every day I would show up with different pastries, with shortbread and cheesecake and biscuits and cookies and brownies and cakes and everything that I knew how to do. And every day, and for whatever reason, uh, I would go back the next day and make more. And Tom never really said anything about my food. He would take a few bites and he would sort of push it to the side of his desk and we would keep talking about whatever we were going to talk about. Um, And then I would just somehow suspend my disbelief and turn around the next day and do more and more. And on the last day, I made him buttermilk biscuits. And they were still warm. And at the time, I lived in an apartment where his uh, previous office was about five blocks away. So the, the biscuits came out of the oven. I wrapped them in a clean kitchen towel, and I ran from my apartment to his office. And I showed up. I was... He- panting, heaving, sweating, and I throw these biscuits out on his table because I wanted him to have them when they were hot. He just kind of looks at me. He ate a couple bites, and he pushed them aside, and I had brought some other pastry and took a few more bites, and then we started to talk about business. And then he looked at me, and he pointed to the food, and he said, what do you want to do with this? And I thought he meant, do you want me to pack it up? Should I go throw it away? (laughs) You want to give it to somebody? I didn't know. I said, "Uh, I don't know. You want to take it outside, give it to your assistant? And he said, no, Like, what do you want to do with this? And I had spent a long time in my career building businesses, um, operations, vision, and execution for other people and other companies. And I looked at him and I said, I want to do for me what I have done all these years for other people. I want to create a sustainable brand that has incredible longevity and and remarkable position in its market. Uh, I want to create a luxury brand that is experiential in its nature, and I want it to take the form of this pastry. And he looked at me and he said, great, let's do it together. And so we did. That is very cool. So that ties into one of the questions I have for, for later. Um, but you mentioned just now that you said you wanted to create a, an experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how is, well, how do you, how do you say the, uh, the name of the company? So the name of the company is Mazadar Bakery. Mazadar. Okay. So Mazadar is a word from the Urdu language. Uh, that we use to describe uh, the magic of something. So the thing that makes uh, anything special, uh, some people would say it's like the Japanese equivalent of umami mm. or the French je ne sais quoi. Yeah. Uh, but for us, we use, it, uh, we use it across a number of things. A lot of people use it primarily for food. So you take a bite of something and you say, gosh, this is so delicious. And I can't put my finger on exactly what it is. I don't know if it's the chocolate or it's the cinnamon or it's the vanilla, whatever it is. And you're trying to find it. And you're like, it, I don't know what it is, but there's a mazadar to it. Yeah. We use that word to describe people. Um, it could be maybe the first time you met your wife yeah. and you saw her, you spoke with her, and you thought, gosh, you know, there's something about her. There's a mazadar about her. It's what you fall in love with, and it's what beckons you back for more. Yeah. So we hope that in our food and in the experience of our food, that you'll find the mazadar, you'll fall in love with us, and you'll come back. Okay, so that I think that actually answers my question, which was, how is mazadar an experience? It's that I want it again. It's about making it personal, and I think that's not exclusive to food. I think that that's important. No matter what you're doing and what you're creating, you have to create a connectivity between your product and your consumer. Um, You also have to create an inextricable link that they almost can't deny themselves. Um, And I think that that's something that's very difficult to do unless you somehow make it personal. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you do that, you've, you've got them, and then you just have to continue to maintain your quality and your execution, and you'll keep them. How is it best experienced? 
oh my god in your pajamas in bed <laughs> with like tons of things on your dvr um it's best for me experienced without planning i think that for me some of the greatest things that have ever happened to me in my life have happened without any planning um without any expectation um but the seizing of that moment and allowing yourself to completely be immersed in what's happening to you at that moment um for me that's how it's i think best experienced yeah by being present by being present gosh yes be present um and but not so overly focused and fussy Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's this brand is so many things but at the end of the day it's a brownie like it's a brownie. Like let's like I'm not curing cancer. You know, it's not a self-driving car. It's a brownie, and it's lovely, and it should be exactly that. Yeah. Um, but the best brownie that you're ever going to have in your life. Yeah, yeah. That's great. Um, I read that it has nine or few nine or fewer ingredients. A few of our things actually have more now. Oh, so well, is that a a uh, just a standard that you want to maintain, or 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 is it is it? The, the fewer the ingredients, the better. Well, it's one of those things where um, sometimes you go to restaurants and you'll and some people do it. My sister and I look at food differently. My sister looks at the main dish or the main protein and decides on that, and I look at the things that come with it. Like I'll just be like, "Ooh, fresh corn," and then I go back and be like, "Oh, I don't really want the fish, but it has fresh corn." Um, my sister be like, "Ooh, fish," and then she's like, oh, "I don't know about the fresh corn." So we kind of you know we look at it differently. Um, so the idea is. Um, to showcase very specific flavors, sometimes when you look at a menu and an item, it looks so, um, it's just, uh, it's too busy. Uh, there's too many things going on. And that's, we're not here to confuse you. We're not here to try to make this so overly ornate that it becomes a, a chore. Yeah. Or it, This is meant to be a really beautiful experience. Um, we want to showcase very specific things. So if it's something that has chocolate and caramel in it, we want you to say, oh, it's chocolate and caramel. We doesn't need to have pink peppercorns with a little bit of lavender oil, <laughs> you know, sitting on a bed of air. Like, that's not interesting. Yeah. What's interesting is something that's very real and that... Um, doesn't confuse you and isn't such a foreign experience that it, it's not something you would ever want to do again yeah. or not do with some frequency. Okay. It also has to do with the freshness of food. We maintain a minimal number of ingredients because we don't use preservatives. Uh, we use all natural ingredients. Um, we know our farmers. We know what dairy our food comes from, you know, those types of things. So that makes it easy to have pure ingredients. Okay. The concept of mise en place. Mm-hmm. I... I don't know where I discovered that word. Maybe I, I, I like watching just Netflix shows. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this is like what focusing is. How is that um, an important element in the cooking process? So mise en place is um, uh, it's a French word, um, and it's meant to um, uh, imply everything in its place. And it's about preparation. So this is actually something that you learn very early on uh, when you start cooking is you want to make sure you have everything that you need before you start. And that's not always possible uh, because very often things will present themselves and, and that sort of thing. But one of the beautiful things about baking is there's a recipe, mm-hmm. there's a guidebook, and it would be very prescriptive and very explicit of those things that you need in order to get the end outcome, which should be a success. So preparation is everything in baking. Preparation and then execution, obviously. But the preparation part is extraordinarily important. So mise en place um, is actually a really beautiful thing. So it's identifying the things that you need and ensuring that each one of those components is prepared precisely as it should be so that you minimize the execution time. The process to actually put something together is almost nothing. But it's the preparation leading up to it that will ultimately ensure its success. Okay. Does that require any specific mind state? It requires focus. Um, it requires the undivided tension that it deserves. Yeah. Um, people very often assign a greater level of respect to the end product than they do to the individual ingredients. I put it the other way around. Yeah. If the individual ingredients and sort of your starting components aren't precisely what they need to be and you haven't afforded them the respect to give them the focus that they deserve, you're never going to get the outcome that you want. Um, so I think that's about making sure that you have everything you need, you're not distracted, um, and that you also think about it as every one of those components is as important as the other. Um, it isn't that, well, we have enough butter, we don't have enough vanilla, we should be fine. It's like, no, yeah. you need everything, and every everything has its own role. Okay. Um, and I've heard that cooking is not baking. 
Um, <laughs> cooking is not baking. Baking is not cooking. Many people who enjoy baking can't cook to save their lives. <laughs> and many people who enjoy uh, cooking, uh, for them, baking is just, it seems uh, completely uh, just foreign to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a level of precision around baking that doesn't have to exist in cooking. And there's a level of experimentation in cooking that cannot exist in baking. Yeah. Um, so you kind of pick if you're, you know, what side of the brain you, you decide to, uh, align yourself with. I, I mentioned earlier that I, I bought the short, no, the, the toasted cumin shortbread cookies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, cumin usually is not a present in shortbread cookies at all. It's not. You can toss those in and it'll be fine. <laughs> it, but then we adjust the recipe. Okay. Right. So you put in cumin, you reduce the amount of sugar, and it's, it's all about balance, okay. um, which I think is true of anything that you do. Yeah. It's about finding that balance. And what's interesting is everybody's balance is different. So as a chef, you have a palate that you've, you, have, you have found um, to be ideal. Um, you understand that which you enjoy. Um, and then having to share that with the world, it's um, very humbling to find what people agree with and what people don't agree with. And so I'll say, this is the best of this, or I, I really enjoy making it this way. And then to get feedback for people to say, oh, I didn't, you know, gosh, that was really salty, or it seemed to have too many nuts or something like that. And being able to say, okay, there's one is adhering to sort of what your passion is and what you're, you're, you're like completely loyal to. And the other is, let's make it a commercial product and, and find sort of that right balance yeah. there. So it's a little bit of a negotiation in, in, in baking. It is. And a bit of it also is sort of uh, really, really believing in that which you, uh, that which you, in that which you do, believing that what you have created is something that may not be immediately received or might be something a little bit unusual, but knowing that long-term it's going to make sense. Mm-hmm. When I first started the brand, uh, I had a very close friend of mine say to me, you need to change the name. And I said, why? And she says, because no one's ever going to understand that name. Um, and that's not going to build your brand. Um, and I thought about it for like two days. And then afterwards I said to her, I said, I thought about it for two days. <laughs> um, that's a long time. Um, cause I do a lot of thinking every day. And, uh, I said, this, this is the right thing to do. And she's like, Oh, people have a hard time saying it. And it's so foreign. And I was like, no, it's beautiful. And it, it's, it's intentional and it's thoughtful and it's, it's meaningful. And, you know, so there are times when you don't bend on something and then there are other times when, you put less nuts in something, and you go on your merry way. <laughs> awesome. Um, that's oh. So now I'm going to shift to the questions that I said to you earlier. Okay, great. And the first one of those is that if you could share one of your qualities with somebody or a mass of people, which quality would that be? I think the quality that I would share of my own with other people would be. Uh, my malleability, uh, being able to have a fluidity in both mindset and execution that can read a room quickly, can assess a situation with some ease, um, and respond to it in a way that is most advantageous, not just to you as an individual, but to the overall outcome. Um, that's something that I got much better at as I got older, um, and, and presented with sort of unusual circumstances, um, I think that there's a lot of fail. There's a lot of breakage um, in things that are not malleable. Um, I think about the trees, uh, and you think about the trees that have really, really strong branches and ones that are very, very straight. Mm-hmm. And then you think about the ones that have a little bit more bowing to them. I grew up in a part of the country that had a tremendous amount of snow, uh, just feet and feet and feet of snow every winter. And the branches that were the were the most sort of taut. Uh, with the least amount of give were the ones that would break under any weight or pressure of the snow. And those that had a little more fluidity to them or had a little bit more bend in the fibers of their, um, of their branches, when they were presented with some weight or some adversity of the snow and the ice, they would bend a bit and they would change their direction and they would modify their, their position so that they could, they could bear that weight and they could carry themselves in that way, knowing eventually that weight was going to go away. Uh, and I really used to think about that a lot, that all those trees that seemed really rigid um, and unable to adapt would break and die. Um, and I think that that's something that is um, a real challenge for entrepreneurs especially. Um, we can't be rigid. We have to be flexible. Yeah. That was a great explanation of being malleable. Um, this is a question about risk. Okay. What is the biggest risk you've taken that paid off? 
<laughs> I think I'm taking the biggest risk of my life now and I'm not sure it's going to pay off. So let's, <laughs> let's have a, maybe there's a 2.0 to this conversation. Um, I would say that probably the biggest risk that I took was leaving Goldman Sachs. Mm-hmm. Um, for most people in my profession in the, in the finance world, uh, Goldman Sachs was the ultimate destination. Um, and so when I made the, the very conscious, uh, relatively quick decision to leave. Um, it was met with a lot of doubt from a number of people. Um, where people said, why, why are you doing that? But you, you have exactly what everybody's going for. Why are you now leaving um, to sort of delve into an unknown? Particularly in finance, um, entre- being an entrepreneur is not something that is uh, very well sort of understood or, or um, uh, acknowledged. So for me to go off and do that, that was a huge risk, not really knowing if the, this was going to work or not work or sort of where I would go. Um, and it ultimately has paid off in spades. Uh, but it wasn't without its challenges, and it wasn't without its sort of time lags and its sort of situations. But um, taking a risk to do something that is non-traditional mm-hmm. and taking a risk to step away from what the societal expectation is, is of who you are or what you do um, has, a, has a great potential to pay off. What did you do when you left Goldman Sachs? Oh, my God, I cried. Um, I didn't actually. I did. I probably a lot. Um, I I think you know when I left when I left originally um, Goldman Sachs, I left and started a company with a very good friend of mine, who was in business school at Morton at the same time as I was, and he was an aerospace and defense banker. And I had a a, a great interest in, in uh, aviation. Uh, my father and his friends started an airline when I was a child, and uh, you know I grew up flying. I'm a pilot. My father's a pilot, and uh, we understood airlines well. But one thing that I also knew is that the market didn't understand airlines well. And I had this this shared belief with this friend of mine. And we always kept talking about eventually wanting to do something. We're going to do something together. It's Again, there there was a mazadar about him. I knew that there was something special. And I knew knew we would have to come back together somehow. And uh, we we had mapped out a plan. And we were like OCD MBAs. Of course, we had a whole plan. And this year one, year two, year nine, year ten. And uh, we had an opportunity to be seated by a good uh, a mentor of mine, at which point I called him and I said, Michael, I think the time is now. And he's like, we, we're not on plan. Like We have three more years of, to make money and build relationships and get promoted to MD and all these other things. And I said, yeah, but I think the time is now. And uh, we both did it. We jumped. And that was a, a huge risk uh, of ours, but it was, I think, probably one of the best things that we've ever done. Hmm. So it paid off. It did. Excellent. Um, what are six qualities that you think successful people need. Okay. Well, I can't count very well, so you'll have to tell me how many I've got. Okay. This uh, is a lot. <laughs> so I think the six qualities um, successful people really need, um, I will say, truthfully, malleability is one of them. Okay. Um, just the, the ability to sort of respond to your environment, but do it in a way that isn't, you're never, um, how do I put this? Malleability doesn't mean that you are responding to existing pressures or forces it means that you are anticipating that which will come forward and modifying your behavior your execution your path your thought process to respond to what will happen if you're responding to what's happening now you're already late yeah um it's done it's happened it's like when you see a star in the sky that star is dead you're seeing it now but it's gone Mm -hmm. um and so you have to sort of think about that so it isn't about saying this this is coming my way i need to respond it's like what's beyond that what's what's going to happen um and that requires a tremendous amount of focus um and sort of awareness to be able to do that um i think the second and the third things around uh that i would say are, are qualities sort of go hand in hand uh one is um a tremendous sense of self and the other is a tremendous sense of humility um, and so, so knowing when you can sort of push and knowing when you have to back away. A lot of people talk about failing fast. You hear that, that phrase a lot. Yeah. I never knew what it meant until I, I wasn't failing fast. Um, it, and I, I, don't, I don't believe in that, but I believe in sort of the awareness of when you think it's going to work, at what point do you push, and at what point do you go back. I find myself now in my situation... Um, thinking about this whole idea of if you're ever um, swimming in the, in like the islands or where it's really beautiful and you see sort of like a, a pool of water, it's like an alcove of water. And the only way to get to it is to swim underneath something. And so, you know, I have to hold my breath and swim underneath something for a certain period of time and I'll, I'll arrive on the other side. I know it's over there. And all I have to do is to just 
just hold my breath for a little bit of time. And there's this moment, no matter how long you're underwater, where you have this moment of panic and you're underneath and you think to yourself, do I swim back and get, get my air or should I just keep going? Um, and that's sort of that balance between arrogance and humility. Mm. Do I keep going or do I go back? Um, and as an entrepreneur, you almost always keep going. Um, but there are times when you have to understand that I need to go back. Yeah. yeah. So you have three. So that's three. Okay. Malleability. Uh, knowing what you know, being good at that, and being even better at surrounding yourself with people who know what you don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that, for, for most entrepreneurs, is really difficult because I think that we have an expectation that we should know and do and be everything. I am, and I have been in my business, everything from delivery person to um, receptionist to uh, you know troubleshooter on the website to um, strategist to PR to chef and restaurant uh, recipe developer. But then at some points you have to stop and say, where are my true strengths? Um, how am I going to be able to build this? And who do I need around me who's going to do some of these other things even better where my strengths are? Um, and another skill that I think is extraordinarily important is to build your own obsolescence. I had a very uh, dear mentor of mine who says to, said to me when I told her that I wanted to do this, and she looked at me, she says, okay. And she said, what were I going to call it? And I told her, she says, good. And I said, why? She says, never make it an eponymous business. Don't put your name on it. Um, I said, okay. She said, because you want to build your obsolescence and create your obsolescence from the first day that you start a company and a business. Things should live well beyond you. Um, and if you don't want them to live beyond you, go be an actor. But you want to do something that just has your name, you want your name in lights, then go do that. Go do something that is going to be focused just on you as an individual. But if you're looking to build a business, a company, an ideology, um, a, a something, a strategy, a product, it has to live beyond you. You can be the face of it. You can be the brains behind it. You can be the engine within it. But it should not actually depend on your being there um, in the long term. Okay. That's excellent. Yeah. Six. Is that six? It's five. Forgiveness. Hmm. You should be able to forgive yourself. Ah, so not even, it's yourself. It's yourself. We're, we're very good at forgiving other people and holding grudges and different things. Um, sort of resetting yourself every day, um, asking for forgiveness of the things that didn't go well, um, and allowing yourself to understand that there is a there is a, 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 a span um, in your life where, the, where it's okay that things aren't going to work. Yeah. And you have to forgive yourself for that. Um, we're not good at that, any of us. Yeah. How do you define focus? And how do you do it? I define focus as the giving of my full attention to a particular issue. So it isn't that I'm focused on one thing, but it's that I'm focused on a particular situation or a, um, a problem or something like that. So to be able to focus means that the lights dim around everything else except for that which on which you need to spend time. Um, focus is a really, really difficult thing for me. Um, I have a hard time focusing. I don't think I'm an ADD type person, unless I've had like two coffees in a row and then people are like, okay, we need to cut you off. Um, but I think that focus for me is about looking at a situation in its totality, addressing it in a way that it allows me to push it then out of my brain um, and to make space for something else. So focus for me is really about trying to be um, quickly assessing a situation. Focus is about giving it what, it's need, what it needs, feeding it the way that it needs to be fed, and then allowing it to then move forward without me. Okay. And how do you do it? I do it by, uh, I, do, I, I focus by taking everything else in my brain and either writing it down, um, talking about it, putting it somewhere else, which allows me the sort of headspace to address what it is that I need to address. So I, it's again, it's a little bit about forgiveness. I forgive mm -hmm. myself that I'm not going to remember these things. Um, and in, in doing that, all of a sudden I sort of free myself up to focus on what needs to actually get done. Um, I, I tried for a while to focus on the sort of timings 
And so I said, all right, I'm going to spend this hour doing this. I'm going to spend this hour doing that. Um, and that just doesn't work for me. I think it works for some people, but it doesn't work for me um, because there are inevitably things that come up or something, situations that arise. Um, and then there are times when I was like, oh, I want to get on Instagram. And I was like, I can't get on Instagram. It's like, okay, never mind. And I'm like, well, it's business development. I'm like, no, it's not. Um, and, uh, you know, but then sort of giving yourself sort of those moments of sort of reprieve. Um, but I'll just, I literally make lists. I write things down, things that have to get done. And as soon as I write it down, it, it frees up space for me to say, and now I'm going to focus on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, pushing other things aside allow me to focus. I've come to realize that a lot of the times people just need to allow themselves to yeah. focus. Yeah. Everybody can do it. Yeah. You just you've got to give yourself a chance. Yeah, you have to give yourself a chance. And you have to give yourself some space. Um, I was like, I'm going to focus. And in three minutes, I'm, no, that's not, <laughs> nope, you've already lost, you've lost yourself. You don't, and I think focusing also is not putting time limits on things. Uh, focus is about um, identifying an outcome. Focus is about looking for a particular step at which you will, um, at which you will stop or do something else. But if you say, I'm going to focus for the next 10 minutes on this, uh, then you're not really giving yourself the true ability to focus. Because now what you're focused on is the 10 minutes. You're not focused on what the problem is. Is there something that you do every day that that helps you start to focus? I get up really early. Okay. Um, and that for me is a, is a huge focus issue. Um, it allows a couple of things. One is everything is quiet. Nobody wants anything of me. Nobody needs of me. The phone isn't ringing. Um, you know, uh, our kitchen. We we start baking at six in the morning. Uh, when we move into our physical bakery that's under construction right now, it will start at four. I will not be the person starting at four. Ooh. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's not easy. It's early. <laughs> it's, it is early. Um, but right now what I do is in, to focus is I get up early, um, and I spend time just going through things that are just somewhat frivolous. I'm sort of going through sort of like if it's, you know friends have sent things or um, I've been you know eyeing a skirt that I want to buy or whatever it is or read this article that I've bookmarked and um, and different things like that and that's sort of this get all of that out of the way and sort of get my brain sort of moving a little bit and then the first thing that I do business wise is I read Women's Wear Daily every day. Okay. Um, my business is a luxury business yeah. and so just to sort of learn and think about how other people are thinking about things and I always look for an interview of a CEO or brand strategist or chief marketing officer or something and they always they're always something about what they do um, or what they're focused on or mm-hmm. what they're what they're singularly worried about and I look at that and whatever that issue is I think about it in the context of my own business um, and when I do that it starts me to focus on thinking about solving problems and then once that happens that I'm just laser focused on the business hmm what time do you wake up um, I wake up at five okay yeah so it's not terribly early, not early. but I'm usually in bed by one Okay. So it is ooh, early. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Yes. Are you a lucky person that doesn't need a lot no, of sleep? Oh, you're I'm not. not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, and when I'm permitted to sleep, I sleep and sleep. I, I, I go and visit my family in Michigan with some frequency. And uh, um, my mother jokingly sometimes says she hold a mirror up to my mouth to make sure I'm still breathing because I, <laughs> I could sleep all day um, to regenerate. So. Is it easier for you to just fall asleep on a plane? Oh, yeah. I fall okay. asleep before takeoff. Oh. If I'm not flying it, I'm asleep. This is a question, one of the last ones, about expectations. Mm. In creating Mazadar, what took longer than expected and what didn't take as long? So in creating Mazadar, the thing that took and continues to take longer than it expected is the physical manifestation of our brand um, in a storefront. Yes. So 90% of all restaurants fail in the first year. Um, I continue to stand by the fact that ours is a, a food experience. Um, not to sound completely she-she and ridiculous about it, but it, it's more than just a, a restaurant mm-hmm. because it is about having this life experience and attachment to a food in a way that will bring you back and draw you into that which we believe are things are, that are important. Um, so all that being said, it's still a storefront. It still sells food. Um, and I wanted to minimize and mitigate any and all of those risks the best that I could. Mm-hmm. number of things are out of our control. Um, and so I decided to start the brand um, as an online business and through wholesale relationships. So that's actually what didn't take nearly as long as I thought it would, what to, was to be nationally recognized for our food and our products. Um, we very quickly got recognized as 
I was um, the rising star according to Food and Wine. Uh, the New York Times did a story of 77 donuts in New York City yeah. and named ours their favorite. Wow. Uh, we were named Best Brownie in New York City. And all these like just different awards, Oprah Winfrey put us in her own list for her best favorite scones. Wow. Um, so we started to receive a lot of recognition, and it happened much faster than I'd expected. And I'm very grateful for it because it has um, catapulted our business into a stratosphere that we hadn't um, planned on, or, or nor did I think um, we were either deserving of or ready for. Um, that's something that's, I think, interesting about success is you have to believe that you're deserving of it. Not in an entitled way, mm-hmm. but, but to be open and receptive to it um, is really important. So that happened much faster than I thought it would. And I thought because of all of that, building a storefront would be, take me six months to do. Um, everybody says in construction, double your budget and double your timeline, and you may get close to that. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. I have four postgraduate degrees. I could build a building. This can't be that hard. Um, we have now just doubled our timeline. It will be coming up on a year, and uh, we have doubled our, our budget. Mm. So it's taking much longer. Um, I am humbled by that every day uh, and frustrated by it even more. Okay. Your photographer. Yes. She takes great photos. She takes amazing photos. Yes. <laughs> How did you find her? Her name is Vanessa Rees. Yeah. I met Vanessa through a woman named Jamie Cohen. So Jamie Cohen is our brand designer. Uh, Jamie has worked with me from the very start, when, even when I said, I think I'm going to do this. Um, what is the messaging? What is the brand? Everything has to be considered and curated in a way that... Um, it, it's a seamless experience in which you want to immerse yourself and become a part of because we are going to be a larger lifestyle brand. And in that process, Jamie um, is, she's also one of the people that runs the branding um, uh, program at the SVA, the School of Visual mm-hmm. Arts. And uh, she had met a number of photographers and she looked at me and she said, you need to meet Vanessa. And I was like, okay, let's meet Vanessa. And I looked at some of her work and I thought, all right, that's interesting. And I had already spoken to a couple of photographers and were very... Um, they were very formal interviews or formal conversations and discussions. And I met Vanessa and, uh, there was something very passionate about her and something very connected about her and started explaining what, what we do and what we believe in. And then she started talking about what she believes in. And all of a sudden it felt like we had known each other forever. Um, one of the biggest tragedies of Vanessa is that she has never had our food. Oh man. She is vegan. Yes. Oh. So um, we have a couple of, of products. So now, actually, we've actually worked on products so we could actually feed Vanessa. Okay. Um, but most of what she, um, what she does um, for us is all through the stories that I tell her. So this is what I love about her is she can take my intention just orally and yeah. visually and turn it into those photographs. They are brilliant. Thank you. They, I will tell her. Thank oh, they're you. so good. Um, do you guys have gluten-free options? We have a few gluten-free options. Okay. Um, our challenge is, is that uh, we build up, all, everything is out of one um, kitchen. Yeah. So if you have a true celiac, uh, if you have yeah. a truly celiac disorder um, or something where you can't have even any flour in the air, we can't accommodate that. Yeah. But we do do gluten-free. We have, we have a gorgeous um, flourless chocolate cake oh. that is absolutely delicious. We do pavlovas, um, all sorts of things like marshmallows and brittles and toffees and other things and we're starting to introduce gluten-free pa- other pastries like scones and biscuits and, and cakes as well okay because there's somebody in my office and i'm like nessa you want to you want a, a cumin a toasted cumin <laughs> shortbread she's like right gluten-free i'm like <laughs> i'm gonna see if i if they have yes we do have some gluten-free things. that's great yeah. um how can people find out about you and mazadar so people can find us online uh we're at uh, mazadarbakery.com and uh, all of our products are available online I think we're the best bakery on the planet because you are in your pajamas, on your computer, <laughs> sitting in your sofa, and you place an order, and we deliver it to your door. Um, so there's no better way to receive pastry as far as I'm concerned. And we also ship uh, throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do really beautiful gifts. Uh, it's just a really wonderful way for people to connect with another person um, and show their love and gratitude and, and intentions uh, with our food. We are uh, also have a number of wholesale clients. So we work with a lot of uh, ba- other uh, coffee shops and cafes and places, including people like Twitter and Neuhaus, uh, where we sell our pastries. Uh-huh. Uh, you can get them at Witchcraft. Yeah. Uh, and you can also get them on JetBlue. Ah. So we work with JetBlue Airways. They have a service called Mint Service, which is their premium class service uh, that is from both Boston and New York to LA and San Francisco and into um, the Bahamas and Aruba as well. And every one of the uh, premium class passengers gets one of our boxes of pastry. 
as a part of the premium class service. Um, so right now we bake for just over 16,500 passengers um, a month. Wow. Yeah. That is quite the operation. We hope to be open in the beginning of June, um, our, our first uh, flagship retail store, um, uh, 28 Greenwich Avenue, which is uh, between West 10th and Charles Streets in the West Village. Okay, yeah. awesome. Um, if somebody has no idea what to order, what do you tell them? That's a really good question. Um, if you have no idea what to order, uh, I would say make a, make a, my first question is chocolate or no. And so if the answer is no, uh, then I would say you have to try the scones because they're absolutely divine, and uh, try our donuts and our shoe. And shoe sure. is a, the shoe. the shoe is a cream puff, mm-hmm. uh, but not a traditional cream puff. So it's a pot de shoe pastry that we build a very thin sugar cookie around. Yeah. Um, we bake it, and then we fill it with vanilla pastry cream. I am obsessed with uh, layers. I want layers of flavor, layers of texture, layers of experience. If something's monochromatic, it ceases to be interesting to me. Uh, I want something that will continuously evolve, um, and that's one of the things that our shoe does. It's crunchy on the outside, it's softer on the inside, it's creamy because of the pastry cream. What's the stuff on the top? Because I, I ordered this. What, yeah. yeah. What is so that? the stuff on the top is this, it's a Kraken cookie. Ah, okay. um, so it's a cookie. So the vanilla ones are made with a vanilla cookie on top, and the chocolate ones are made with a black cocoa cookie um, that I think tastes like the best Oreo you'll ever eat in your life, which is so crazy because it's not at all an Oreo, um, but it has that intense chocolate experience yeah. that's not overly sweet. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's science. Yeah. When you bake something at a really high temperature, it tends to, depending on what the batter is or the dough is, it puffs up. And so if you bake something at a lower temperature, it takes a slower time to rise. So we bake these at a very high temperature. We pipe um, this batter, and then we put a disc, a frozen, super, super thin disc of cookie on top of this pipe puddle of batter. We bake it at a very high temperature. The batter itself puffs up. It creates an opening inside, which is empty, and that cookie ends up melting around um, that puffed-up little ball, and that's why you get that crust. That was excellent. <laughs> that sounds so good. Umber Ahmad, thank you for coming on the First Focus Show. Ryan Ross, thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. This is Ryan Ross. Thanks for listening to this episode of the First Focus Show. If you're interested in tasting what Mazdadar has to offer, head to their website, M-A-H-Z-E. D-A-H-R.com and you can get it right to your door if you live in the United States. If you're in New York City, head to the store at 28 Greenwich Street and take a look, smell, and experience Mazadar yourself. If you like this episode, please rate it in the iTunes store and tell three of your foodie friends about it. Look out for new episodes coming up soon and in the meantime, stay focused. Stay focused.